Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is Metal Mike, and in this episode, I'm joined by hair metal author Christopher Hilton. And together, we do a Motley Crue album ranking. You'll see that sometimes we're on the same page with these, and sometimes we're not. We also try to figure out what their best crew logo was, their best image, their best video, and more. Check it out. Well, Chris, welcome back to the 80s Glam Model Cast. How you doing tonight, my friend? Mike, hey, thank you so much for having me back. I'm doing great. Happy to be here. Well, Chris is the author of The Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of Hair Metal. Such a great book. We talked about it in a previous podcast. Chris, anything you want to tell the fans out there about that book? Oh, hey, just I'm happy if they're enjoying it. If they haven't read it yet, uh, hopefully it can bring back some good nostalgia, maybe help us understand some things we might not have known. It's kind of like a big VH1 for the whole era, the whole genre. VH1 behind the music, really. Yeah, I was telling Chris before we started to record, uh, a lot of information in there helped me on podcasts that I did after. So, great read. Even Metal Mike, there was things that Metal Mike did not know about hair metal that he got from the book. So, I definitely recommend to check it out. And we'll put links uh, in the video. So, but tonight's topic is all about Motley Crue. What we're going to ultimately do is we will rank the albums. Uh, We'll go right down the line from lowest to highest ranking. And we've got a couple other little questions that we'll, we'll explore. Their, their look, their logos. There's so much to talk about when it comes to Motley Crue. So, Chris, why don't we just jump right into it? Motley Crue was a band that was constantly changing its look. That kept it very exciting as a fan. What do you think the best look of Motley Crue is? <laughs> well, it's a great point. I mean, Motley Crue is one of those bands, uh, at least in the 80s, that change their logo and their look and to some degree their their musical style with every single album uh you know and changing your logo with every album release is kind of like commercial suicide for most bands right uh but it was pretty much just uh, a day in the average life of the the craziness that was motley crew uh but you know for me personally you know they went through different phases for sure uh all the way back from in the early days you know they there's a lot of really theatrical stuff. You know, if you think back to Shout of the Devil and even the end of the Chief Fats for Love era, you know, Nikki Six kind of looked like Mad Max beyond Thunderdome to a certain <laughs> extent. There was, the, <laughs> there was, you know, the shoulder pads and the blood stains and the war paint and the, the black bars under his eyes, which actually he never really let go of to some extent. Uh, but, you know, a lot of armbands and spandex and accessories, kind of like Hell's Poster Boys. Um, and then, of course, they, they took a left turn with Theater of Pain and became almost the kings of glam, right? Everything went to, to pink and spandex and sequins and the gloves and the glasses and the body suits. And, and this was really before Look What the Cat Dragged in, right? So they were almost, you know, to a certain extent, trying to set the trend there. Oh, yeah. Uh, with girls, 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 they stripped it back. You know, everything went to, uh, you know, sleeveless T-shirts and denim and leather and black and brown and no more extravagant costumes. Uh, and, you know, not a drastic change for, for feel good. And then, of course, we know significantly stripped it back in uh, the mid-90s and some strange stuff for Generation Swine. But <laughs> all that said, I mean, it's all personal preference. I mean, you got to love them 
in each era. Uh, me, I was always kind of preferential to the Dr. Feelgood kind of era, the 1989, 1990. Uh, you know, it didn't have the, what at that time had looked kind of, in retrospect, a little corny, <laughs> what was done with Shadows the Devil, although that was great at the time. Uh, it took a little away from the, the glam rock of theater and, and kind of combined the best of both worlds. But that's just me. You know, I love all their errors and all their looks, certainly. How about you? You know, um, I mean, shout out the devil. Like, when you open that gatefold, that is pretty classic, and that is very cool. But I got to agree with you 100%, man. Dr. Feelgood's the best look. And to some extent, if somebody, if you saw rockers dress like they dressed for um, Dr. Feelgood today, it would pretty much work still, in my opinion. Uh, it wouldn't be too far off. Where some of the stuff, like if somebody came out today with the theater of pain look, I mean, we'd appreciate it, but we might think it was a little weird. So I feel like this is the, I think this is their coolest look, the most down-to-earth, you know, a little bit of flash, but but still down-to-earth. Yeah, it's aged a little better than some of the other looks. I agree 100%. Well, you mentioned one that I was going to ask you about, and that's the logo. So the logo's changed pretty much every album. What do you think is the, the coolest logo? Or which one do you like the best, I guess, is the question. Well, I mean, again, it's just I can't name another major band that changed their logo with every album. So it really is a no. unique thing that deserves to stand out. Uh, you know, it's just personal preference. Uh, you know, I can't say that one of them is better than the others. Again, uh, I like the, the Feel Good Era logo. I like those skull and crossbones they had at the front and the back. Uh, you know, the, the girls' logo was kind of like the, the handwriting. Um, I even like the 19... 19- 94 uh, logo, the mm-hmm. big block letters, you know, that just kind of announced Motley Crue right in your face. Uh, so, you know, I think they're all, you know, they're all pieces of art that I could only aspire to. <laughs> I'm not an artist, uh, you know, as long as they resonate with the fans. But I just think it was fascinating that they changed each time. I don't think uh, that would ever be commercially recommended to anybody. But, again, we're talking about Motley Crue here. They never played by the rules and it seemed to work out okay enough for them yeah if i had to pick one man i think i would go for the theater of pain logo that was the most fun one to draw as a kid you know dipping the m down real <laughs> low and you know curving back up and and i've got a little bit of artistic skill so like i said that was one of the logos that i mastered and i think that one just i don't know that's probably one of the first ones that i ever saw so i just like that one the best Oh, yeah, I remember stenciling those logos on everything I could, right? My Mm -hmm. notebooks, my book back, everything. (laughs) You know, one thing, too, that Motley Crue was really good at was really, like, matching the look with the sound and then having that consistent vibe throughout the album because you you were kind of talking, like, okay, you know, they sleezed it up a little bit with the leather and the denim on Girls, 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 and then it's a little bit more flamboyant on Theater of Pain, and I think the look sometimes resonates right through the music. Well, probably Shout Out the Devil as well. It's a very heavy album, a metallic album, and they look very metal in the in the photos. So I feel like their look and their logo and the sound, everything went in, in perfect harmony. I mean, it was pretty genius. Yeah, some of that was just the lifestyle, right? Uh, you know, when they were in the Girls, Girls, Girls era, that was pretty much the peak of, you know, alcohol addiction and drug addiction. And whether it be the cover that's that black and white or, you know, just kind of the dirty look or the dark nature of the music, uh, it all went together. It was all tied together. Um, and a lot of it, you know, give them credit, a lot of it was more calculated than you might think in terms mm-hmm. of the costumes and the presentation and the stage show. I mean, Motley Crue, uh, you know, for all their goods and bad, uh, they were always, Nicky Six in particular, was very calculating about the, the message and the show he wanted to give to fans and the, the image they put across. 
Uh, there's probably more thought put into that than people had suspected. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. Um, what about the tours? The tours were all pretty epic. Uh, I caught a lot of them, but I didn't catch all of them. If you had to pick from ones you've seen in person or ones you've seen on YouTube, what would you say their best tour is from your point of view? Well, I've been lucky. I've seen every Motley Crue tour since 1989. Oh, nice. Uh, so uh, that was uh, pretty... Oh, how old was I 1989? I guess it was 15. So before that, I was a little little too young, perhaps, to, to head to major arena concerts. Uh, but I've seen every tour since Dr. Feelgood. Of course, I've watched the ones older than that on YouTube. Uh, you know, it's again, it's all personal preference, uh, you know, depending on what set list was around at each time. Uh, and I think there's pluses and minuses to every era. Again, I, I sound like a broken record, uh, but, you know, I keep coming back to the Dr. Feelgood tour. I mean, they were a well-oiled machine on that tour, right? It didn't have uh, the, the influence of all the drugs and alcohol, or at least it's not as much as on the girls' tour or the Theater of Pain tour. Uh, you know, it was a huge production by that point. It wasn't uh, scaled back like it was a little earlier in their career. You know, again, they were mostly sober at that point, and like I said, they were a machine in terms of the performance. Uh, you know, in the later years, I think some of the, the shows were more extravagant, perhaps, in terms of the, the visuals and, and more laser and more pyrotechnics. And, of course, you had, you know, Tommy Lee's great theatrics with the different things he came up with in the later years. Uh, you know, and, and some people, you know, give the band a little grief in terms of, you know, Vince's vocal ability as, as we got closer to the, the present. Uh, but for me, I think they were at their the peak of their game on that 1989-1990 tour. Yeah, you know, my first concert that I ever went to as a kid was the Girls, Girls, Girls Tour. That's always going to hold a special place in my heart. And it was kick-ass, a lot of explosions and spinning drum sets and all that good stuff. But from what I've seen, I, I, I agree with you. Once again, Chris, we're on the same wavelength. I'm not sure how long our, us being on the same wavelength will last as we get into our album <laughs> ranking. But uh, from what I can see, it looks like Dr. Feelgood probably takes the cake as a, you know, as a best tour. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they were just tight at that time. It's just time, man. I think I think we we've hit it on the head, and we've just got to jump into it now. Let's start the album rankings. Let's start with number nine, your least favorite. What do you say, Chris? Okay, well, hey, maybe just before we get into them, maybe just a quick disclaimer, sure. right? <laughs> from my end, because uh, I've I've done these lists before, and uh, you know I'm not trying to pass it off as objective or definitive. I'm not really sure there is such a thing, but you know, every time I go to do one of these lists, there's some pretty intense blowback <laughs> to any sort of ranking, uh, and it's fantastic. <laughs> one of the best things about hair metal fans is we tend to be very passionate about the bands and the music we love. But hey, for anybody listening, this is just one guy's opinion or two guys' opinions. Uh, you know, their mileage may vary. I think the esteemed David Lee Roth said it best: "Music is like girlfriends. There's no accounting for people's tastes." And mine included. So oh, if my too. least favorite Molly Crew album is a listener's favorite, then apologies in advance. It's just my two cents. Trying to pick your favorite Molly Crew album is kind of a lot like trying to pick your favorite child, you know? <laughs> I'm not sure it can be perfectly done. All right, Chris. So now you got to reveal it, man. What do you got? What's your, what's your number nine? Okay. <laughs> okay. So, you know, parts of this list I struggled with, uh, but parts of it I didn't. Uh, and number nine, I did not struggle with. I picked uh, the Generation Swine album from 1997. Okay. Uh, you know, this was supposed to be the big reunion with, with Vince Neil. And, of course, it was the reunion with Vince Neil. But uh, this record was, was something else, right? And, of course, they came off the 1994 record that was made that met with great dislike by their average fan and great indifference by almost everybody else. But, uh, you know, they really went in a different direction with Generation Swine. I mean, 
Tommy and, and Nikki decided to produce it themselves. They brought in Scott Humphrey to produce, and, and he was more of a bystander, unlike Bob Rock, who had really put him through the paces on prior albums. But they were really schizophrenic in terms of the style they were speaking. Uh, even Nikki Six said, you know, they wanted the direction of the album to move in some sort of electro grunge style, you know, whatever that is. I don't even know what that means, to be honest. <laughs> uh, you know, Karabi, who was the bell of the ball just a few years later in their eyes, wasn't doing anything they wanted from their view. Uh, you know, I, I think I remember an interview with Humphrey, you know, where Tommy Lee would, Nikki would jump on the intercom and say, you know, Crab, I'm thinking of like an old Bowie, Sisters of Mercy kind of vibe. And then Tommy would get on and say, well, no, it's got to be like Cheap Trick or Nine Inch Nails. Or, you know, finally Nikki would say, well, oh, yeah, it's got to be like Oasis, you know, make it lush <laughs> like that, but heavy like Pantera, right? So, you know, they were all over the mess. And it was a, in my view, it was a messy mix of alternative, grunge, punk, techno, industrial, uh, lots of other things. And yeah, they had Vince Neil back, but they didn't really want him there. You know, right. Vince Neil didn't really want to be there. The record company wanted him to be there. The music wasn't written for his singing style. Eighty percent of it was written for for Karabi. Uh, Vince has been on record saying he hates that record. He didn't want to do it. He probably quit five more times while they were making it. <laughs> uh, you know, it, for me as a fan of Motley Crue, it just didn't offer a lot of what I considered Motley Crue. Uh, you know, we can talk about every song. I could do I could talk for an hour about every song and you know, and pick them apart. But I mean, there's not a lot on there for the average Motley Crue fan, or not to be overly critical because. Uh, again, I love Motley Crue, but maybe not a lot for the average music fan, even in some spots. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm going to give you my nine. It's not the same as yours. It's uh, Saints of Los Angeles. It, I don't think it's a bad album. I just think as Motley Crue progressed into the 2000s, um, I don't know, parts of it just seem kind of phoned in for me. That It doesn't seem uh, like the passion is really there from like the early days. And uh, once again, I do feel like there's a lot of other styles that kind of creep in that aren't Motley Crue-ish. Don't get me wrong, there's quite a few songs that sound a lot like, you know, typical Motley Crue, Saints of Los Angeles, uh, Down at the Whiskey. Uh, but then there's other ones where, I don't know, it almost feels like it's for some other project that Nikki could be working on, but it just gets labeled as Motley Crue. So that one just doesn't feel that Motley Crue-ish for me. So I, once again, I think there's some great points, but I gotta, I've got to rank it at nine. Yeah, I, you know, I, I agree with a lot of what you said there. I, let's just uh, talk about the albums as we go. So I had Saints of Los Angeles ranked number seven. Okay. Um, and again, I think there is a lot of, you know, a lot of things to like about it, but I think it was definitely missing the Motley Crue magic for whatever reason, or at least overall. Um, not the least of which, as you mentioned, uh, Nikki Six co-wrote most of that record with, uh, his 6am bandmates and, right. uh, songwriter Marty Fredrickson. Uh, so it wasn't exactly, you know, Mick Mars didn't contribute a lot of that. Tommy Lee didn't contribute a lot to that. Um, you know, I, I love the title track. I, I thought the title track was outstanding and belongs mm -hmm. on any Motley Crue best of. Yep. Uh, and I thought there were some other good things. I liked uh, Face Down in the Dirt. I liked Down at the Whiskey. Um, but it looked like it was just a little, I think you said, you know, phoned in perhaps, a little boring. Uh, I thought it was, the production on it was great. I thought it was mm -hmm. big and beefy and that rectified some of the issues with their uh, new tattoo prior to that. Uh, but I mean, overall, I think, I guess it's what Motley Crue sounds like in 2008. Um, but it's not Motley Crue of 1983 for me. So <laughs> I was happy to have it and I still spin it from time to time. Um, but it, it's not an exciting record for me by any means. No. Uh, what do you got for eight? I had new tattoos. And okay. so I almost put Saints of Los Angeles in this, but, uh, you know, new tattoos, uh, it's a polarizing album for me. Because, again, if they were coming off 
the, the alternative grungy sounding generation swine. Um, and you know, Nikki six said, Hey, it's time to get back to the cruise roots. Uh, as he put it at the time, he wanted to make the album that he says should have been the successor to Dr. Feelgood. Now, of course, this was super exciting to someone like me because you're thinking, okay, you know, we're going to hear something like Dr. Feelgood. Um, and the good news was, you know, they did get back to their, you know, uh, straightforward rock and roll guitar oriented sleazy kind of sound. You know, it wasn't the, the 1994 album and it wasn't Generation Swine. So that was the good news. The bad news for me is that it just didn't seem to have any life to it. You know, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what it was. I mean, part of it, you know, Tommy Lee had quit the group. Uh, of course, you know, he was, he was done with rock and roll at that point, as he put it. Um, you know, and Randy Castillo is an amazing drummer, a, a perfectly technically competent drummer, and then some. Uh, but I guess it, it wasn't the same as the, you know, big bombastic sound that, that Lee brought to the band. Uh, and the songs themselves, I, I just thought they were a little lacking compared to some of the, the special stuff they had had before that. Uh, maybe a little lifeless, maybe a little uninspired. I think a big problem was the production on the album. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've listened to it so many times and I can't get away from the fact that it's, it sounds thin and it sounds tiny. You know, there's, there's very little guitar layering. Uh, and again, the, the drums just don't have that big, big sound to them that they had on, uh, Feel Good or the, the 1994 album. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, you have an album that was mostly written by Nikki Six and James Michael, who would eventually team up with Six in, in 6 a.m. So, you know, it, it's kind of not exactly a, a Motley Crue album. But hey, you know, there's some, there's some bright spots. And I like the single Hell and High Heels. I like Punching the Teeth by Love. Uh, and it was good to have Molly Crew on the right track again, I think, even if, you know, the train wasn't rolling at full screen. Yeah. Oh, hey, good news. I've got new tattoo at eight as well. Um, and I can agree with oh, okay. everything. I agree with everything that you said. Uh, once again, I feel like parts are phoned in and I feel like parts are forced. I feel like with uh, Generation Swine being a commercial failure, we're trying to recreate the magic of um, Dr. Feelgood, but that time has passed. So I, I don't think it works. I kind of, I'll be honest, I don't like the song Hell on High Heels, and I don't like the song Punching the Teeth by Love. I feel like they're just, they're, they're just very contrived. They don't sound natural to me. There are songs that I really like, like Fake, I think is a really cool song, which is just really honest yeah. about the way their career had went. You know, even there's some fun stuff like First Band on the Moon. I know it's goofy, but it's fun. But, you know, you're, you're right with the sound. I think the drums, um, even though Randy Castillo is a great drummer, I think the point of this album is to try to scale back and not be bombastic, be more like a straightforward ACDC. And, um, you know, it do, there's parts that just don't sound Motley Crue because of Tommy Lee not being there. Uh, but I think it, it's a cool album. You know, it was, it, you know, it's where they should, it's the pocket they should be in. It's just maybe it just wasn't executed properly. That's all. Yeah, absolutely. Well put. Um, so our, our number seven, eight, nine, we, we got the same three records in there. I promise. For those listening, we did not rehearse. <laughs> um, your seven, I think, is Saints of Los Angeles, right? Yep. Okay. Uh, yeah, and once again, you know, we talked about that one. It, you know, it's it's got some good points, got some bad points. Uh, for me, and this is probably going to tick a lot of people off. I've got I've got some Twitter buddies that really love this album, but I've got the, the Motley 1994 album at seven, and and I'm going to say why. I think it's a great album, um, but I'm a big Vince Neil fan, and Vince Neil's a part of the sound of Motley Crue. I just wish, you know, and and, and at the time I was kind of drinking the Kool Aid for many years about the '94 album, like it's the greatest Motley Crue album. But then over time, as I listened to it. I feel like there's some stuff in there that is not Motley Crue-ish. 
Uh, if you listen to Uncle Jack, it's got bends like Alice in Chains do. If you listen to Dropping Like Flies, it's got harmonies that sound like Alice in Chains. There's grunge being integrated with the Motley Crue sound, which, okay, it is the 90s. I get it. But I just feel like, I, th- I think it's a, I mean, I think Krabi's awesome. I think the drumming is killing is killer. I think the guitar playing is killer. The songs are good. I just I just feel like it just it's not Motley Crue with, without Vince for me, and that's where where my stand is today on it. I, I like the album, but it's just it's just not very Motley Crueish. I would love to hear certain songs sung by Vince. I would love to hear what how it could have been if they, maybe they would have kept it together and did an album in '92. Um, but uh, yeah, I I, lo- I really like it. I just maybe not as a Motley Crue album. Well, hey, certainly a lot of fans uh, agreeing with you on that, and I think I agree with a lot of those points too. Now I ranked that album a lot higher. Um, okay. I had it ranked actually at number three. <laughs> oh, nice. Which I'm sure is not going to be popular with a lot of people. Um, <laughs> but a lot of the things you said still hold, right? I don't think this album is necessarily Motley Crue. It's not the Motley Crue that you know and you love. It's something entirely different, right? I mean, Motley Crue is, Motley, is not Motley Crue without Vince Neil. There's just no doubt about it. For better or worse, it is what it is. Um, but I can't help but rank this album so high just because if you take it apart from Motley Crue, because it really is, it's a different animal, uh, it just rocks to high heaven, right? I mean, this is, and it, yeah, you mentioned a song like Dropping Like Flies, which does have some alternative grungy stuff to it, and those aren't in my wheelhouse uh, as elements of music, but I think you're right, it was inevitable that some of that was in there. Oh, yeah. Uh, but in terms of an entity, uh, without comparing it to the band before or after that or what they had kind of been known for, I just can't get away from the monster that this album is. Uh, I think musically, it was the best performance of the band. I don't think they musically did much better than that in terms of a performance. Uh, and, you know, you're right, Krabi brought a different element. He was a songwriter. He was a second guitarist. I love his voice. I'm not going to say I love his voice more or less than Vince Neil. I can't compare it to you. Mm-hmm. They're different animals. Different. Uh, and, and sure, you know what? At the time, there was nothing I wanted more than Dr. Feelgood Part 2. Uh, <laughs> but that just wasn't in the cards. And if I try and accept the self-titled record for what it was, I mean... Like I said, it's a beast. Uh, and I just think, you know, by the time you're done listening to that album, you feel like you've been run over by a truck, uh, you know, in a good way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was quite the accomplishment by them. So uh, I rank it a little higher, but I'm, I'm going to be one of the only guys who does that probably. No, I got, like I said, I got a lot of Twitter buds that love it. Um, and once again, I, I do love it too. It's just that, you know, and what I think about the album, why it, there's a couple reasons why it failed. Obviously, the grunge movement, you know, Motley Crue just can't fit into that no matter what. They're the, they're the poster children of hair metal, and hair metal was, was bad. Hair metal bad in, in 1994. Um, and I think losing Vince was, was, was hard. I mean, you figure you're going into a, a new musical era with, without your original singer. So there's a lot of, things that hurt this album commercially you know what i mean but uh but you're right man it, oh, it, yeah. it is a monster and, and it's it's a great album it's just like i said some people i mean a lot of motley Crue fans yeah they just wrote it all a lot the average fan wrote it off just because vince wasn't on it and i get where they're coming from um but honestly i mean what if soundgarden had released this album in 1994 or put a song like misunderstood on the radio and mtv in 1994 yeah i'll bet you that's a platinum record from soundgarden oh yeah yeah that's a great tune oh yeah so what do you got for number six? Okay, so we're getting into the meat of it. Uh, I had the Girls, Girls, Girls album at, at number six. Uh, you know, the Girls, Girls, Girls album, uh, again, crew had abandoned the, the glam of theater of pain. They traded in their, their makeup for spandex and spandex for leather and motorcycles and strip clubs, and the music was darker, and the music was rougher, and it reflected kind of the shadowy nature 
of the band's lifestyle at that time, which was generally steeped in drug addiction, alcohol, and just general mayhem and dysfunction. I mean, even more than usual. Uh, and they were lucky to even get the, the album out, uh, to be honest. Right. I mean, Nicky Six was at the, the height of his heroin addiction, which had reached its apex in 1987. As the primary songwriter, they really only had eight new songs to go. Uh, basically, two of the tracks were throwaways, the, the short instrumental Nona and the, the, the live rendition of Jailhouse Rock. Um, I always say that, you know, Girls, Girls, Girls could have been an EP, and we really wouldn't have missed anything. I always kind of think of the album as, as half killer, half filler. Yep. I mean, Girls, Girls, Girls is the title track and Wild Side. I mean, this is some of the best Motley Crue has to offer, period. Uh, you know, those are inspired songs that belong on any Motley Crue best of, no doubt. And they saved the album, and they probably saved the band's career as well. Sure. Uh, and there were a couple other cool moments. I thought Dancing on Glass was, you know, kind of a bruising, bluesy rocker. Yep. Uh, I liked All in the Name of, you know, kind of just a, a straightforward slice of, of boogie rock. Uh, but the other four or five songs on the album for me, uh, you know, they weren't so inspired. Um, you know, I just couldn't find any magic there. Um, you know, I think again, they were, they were lucky to get that album out to have those two songs that, that started off, I, I think, kept them running kind of a lot like what, you know, the two singles did for Theater of Pain. Um, so I put this album at six. How about you? What do yep. you have? Yeah, I got Girls, Girls, Girls at six as well, man. Hey, we're right back in line with each other. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, everything you said is is accurate. I mean, Wild Side is awesome, one of their best songs. But I think what I like about the albums, I like the vibe, I like the sound, but the songs, you, you're right, they're just kind of there, you know. I, you da- uh, Dancing on Glass yeah. is really cool. I like that eerie riff, how the Dancing on Glass starts. It's kind of like a cool riff that starts it. Um, but yeah, a lot of the other stuff, you know, all in the name of is kind of cool. I know they played that, uh, at the Moscow Peace Festival and that kind of made you hear it in a different light. So I, I do like that one, but a lot of the other ones, yeah, I mean, if, you know, if I never heard something for nothing again, I mean, I probably would live, you know, I'd be okay. So, you know, there's a lot of just throwaways. Yeah, absolutely. I, I did like the production on the album. You're right. I thought it had a nice guitar tone and a nice sound. Uh, yep. the guitar tone on Theater of Pain was a little muddy, uh, yep. but on Rose Girls Girls, I thought the production was fantastic. So what do you got at five? Okay, so now I'm going to get really unpopular. Um, because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you ask the average, and I, I just this is apologize if you ask the average Molly Crew fan, you know, what's the best Molly Crew album? There's really only one or two answers. <laughs> yep. So, uh, you know, most people are going to say it's out of the devil or it's too fast for love, and anything else is, uh, you know, poppycock. Um, but I put too fast for love at number five. So oh, again, wow. now I've enraged just about all of your listeners. <laughs> They've already shut it off now. Um, that's it. Jeez. I know, <laughs> I know. That's it. I'm sorry. We got halfway through. Um, I know it's controversial that I don't have it higher on the list. And don't get me wrong. I mean, it is a classic record. It is invented. It was groundbreaking for its time. And it had some great songs. I mean, you can't argue the live wire, piece of your action, uh, come on and dance, even the pop oriented public enemy. Uh, number one, these are great songs, I think. And of course, you have to acknowledge there's different versions of this album. Right? There was the, the independently issued Leather Records version. There was the Electra 1992 version. Uh, you know, your preference depends on what you've heard first. I've spent way too much time listening and comparing both of them. Um, I, I believe I prefer the 1982 version. I think the Leather Records version is, is more raw and more mm-hmm. spirited. Um, and in some ways, uh, the Electra version does away with some of that. But all in all, I think it's better production. It's cleaned up. Uh, I kind of liken it to be having like an editor for a book. Um, and a lot of fans are going to list this as number one. I just think, you know, it's a raw album and, and it's, it's all over the place at times. It's, it's primitive. It's inconsistent. It's punk. It's pop. It's metal. 
The production is not fantastic. They're not the most evolved musicians at this point in their career. Uh, you know, Vince sometimes sounds strained or even a little out of tune. Uh, the songwriting is fairly simple, and there's some weaker tracks, I think. You know, in Merry-Go-Round, or even the chorus on Take Me to the Top might have benefited from a rewrite, uh, and some that's a little sloppy. All that said, uh, now that everybody really hates me, uh, <laughs> you know, all of that stuff combines to make it patently genius, just the same, uh, mm -hmm. because it was amazing that they were able to put this together at that point in their career and that point in the genre. Uh, sometimes I think, you know, viewed as a debut record, at that time it was released, it, it ranks a lot higher. But would some fans think so highly of it if it were the fourth Motley Crue album released? You know, I'm not, I'm not so sure. So viewed as a debut album, I, I would rank it a lot better. Uh, but just as the overall catalog, uh, you know, I, I put it at number five. So that's just my take. Well, I'm not going to talk about Too Fast for Love yet with my thoughts because mine's coming in a little bit later on the list. But, but uh, yeah, my, I figured. <laughs> my number five is going to make me unpopular because I got Generation Swine at number five, and I'm one of those weirdos that actually likes Generation Swine. I mean, I agreed with everything you said. I, it's all over the place. But you know what? Sometimes I'm all over the place, and that's it's, and that kind of works for me. Like, I like... It, it, it for me, it's always been uh, Motley Crue's White Album. You know, like it's it, like if you've listened to the White Album by the Beatles, they're all over the place. Everybody's got their own songs, and it, it's kind of you know it's kind of an oddball album. And I, I look at this album that way. Are they jumping on trends at times? Yes. But there are some really cool heavy moments, like Let Us Pray. I love Rat Like Me. Afraid is a is a cool, like, poppy 90s, you know, uh, alternative, whatever. You know, they're all hybrid-type songs. And I think at that time, for me, like, I was embracing different kinds of music. I was listening to electronic music and industrial music. And now my favorite band was, was in integrating some of that into their sound. So, to me, like, I got it. It just, that album made sense to me at that time. I went to the, the CD release party in New York City. So I saw them play the whole album without, and I had never heard it before. So I heard it all live first, and then I bought it that next day. So for me, it's probably a lot of nostalgia. It just reminds me of a cool era. My my boy Vince is back in the band. You know, they're they're experimenting. They're doing some heavy stuff. So for me, I love Generation Swine. Um, I I can totally understand if anybody thinks it's flawed. It's very flawed. But uh, it's just got a special place with me, man. I don't know. <laughs> I got something wrong with me. I like Generation Swine. No, hey, you're not alone, right? And I, that's neat that you got to attend that performance. I remember seeing that. I actually watched it not so long ago. Um, Tommy Lee, I recently saw an interview with him where someone asked him his favorite Molly Crew album. And he said, it's Generation Swine. And he listed a lot of the reasons you said, right? He said, hey, I, we felt like a real band at that time. I don't know how they did that when they, I know they still hated Vince Neil. He hated them. Oh, Maybe definitely. Thinking for everybody about Vince Neil. Uh, but he said, hey, you know, on that album, you know, Nikki sings a song, I sing a couple songs, yep. uh, you know, and he said that was kind of his view of what makes a great album. And it's funny, um, I was listening to what you said, and of course I have a million Molly Crew playlists on my phone. I normally only include two songs uh, from the Swine album. I include Let Us Pray and Rat Like Me. Yeah. So we must both see something there. I thought Let Us Pray, the verses to Let Us Pray were nasty, right? Yeah. And these are some pretty uh, mean things. It was you know, when they get to the chorus, it gets a little droning for me again. Yeah. Uh, I think those verses would have been fantastic for John Karabi. You oh, can yeah. actually hear his voice on the on the chorus, yep. even though Molly Crew denies that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I thought there were some neat things. And it's easy to trash the album in retrospect for people like me, but you're right. In 1997, they couldn't have released Dr. Feelgood, or they no. couldn't have even released New Tattoo, honestly. They would have got laughed, you know, out of the parking lot. Yep. That was the only thing they could have done. Uh, so, you know, you got to kind of view it at the time.
Number four, Chris, what do you got? Okay, I'm going to continue uh, with my trend of being a little unpopular, although I think I might have your support for this. Uh, so I'm, I have an album at number four that most people would have put at the bottom of the list. I have Theater of Pain. Okay. Um, and a lot of it goes back to some of what you were just saying, right? It depends on, you know, what music meant to you at a certain point in time. Uh, and, you know, I cut my teeth on Motley Crue with Theater of Pain. Uh, lots of fans claim it's Motley's worst record, at least in the 80s. Uh, Nikki Six will say the same. I really like it. You know, I don't think it's, uh, you know, some fan, it's not Pink Floyd's The Wall or The Dark Side of the Moon or some fantastic piece of songwriting. Uh, but letting it stand on its own, you know, is just a, a bare bones set of, of meaty, bluesy rock songs. I really dig it. You know, if you compare it to Shout the Devil, yeah, it's going to be a, a step down. Um, and this is another album. Again, Motley Crue was lucky to even get this out. You know, when we don't have to, to rehash all the details, but, you know, for fans out there that are listening, they know, uh, you know, Vince Neil was involved in, in the car accident and, and charged with vehicular manslaughter. And, you know, at the time they were recording this, you know, he was out on bail, but no one knew what was going to happen with him. Uh, you know, they didn't know if there was going to even be a future Motley Crue or what was mm-hmm. going to happen. So this was recorded under under quite the backdrop. Um, you know, and of course, uh, you know, Nicky Six had started his heroin addiction. He didn't have a lot of songs. Uh, you know, Vince Neil at the time, he was trying to get sober and, you know, he didn't think much of the songs. Um, but again, there's probably nothing on the album that you know, jumps out at you saying this has to be on a Molly Crew greatest hit other than Home Sweet Home, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, I didn't think there was, you know, there wasn't fillers like what, what I perceived to be, to your point, something for nothing or Bad Boy Boogie off Girls, 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 yeah. right? I liked all the other the B-side songs. Uh, you know, big fan of, you know, songs like Louder Than Hell or uh, Keep Your Eye on the Money Tonight We Need a Lover, even the speed metal of Use It or Lose It. Yep. I just find every time I pop it on, you know, I, I listen to it front to back, although admittedly I'll, I'll skip smoking in the boys' room. I just, <laughs> I know it was a huge hit for them. I just can't. I don't, I don't know. I just can't do it. Um, I loved it at the time, of course, like everybody. Um, and of course, Home Sweet Home, you know, it, it's land-breaking. I mean, Molly Crew didn't write the first power ballad, for sure, but they did write the power ballad that served as the template for the thousands that came after it. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, I like them. I like the guitar tone. I like, you know, Neil's aggressive vocals. I thought the songs are straightforward, chorus-driven. Uh, they gave the album a pretty mean plant. So, again, I'm alone on this, but, again, uh, you know, I, it was, it's all about what you were doing at the time and, and what influenced you. Uh, I still like the album. Well, before I mention my number four, you're right. I'm with you 100%. I love Theater of Pain. It was the first Motley Crue album I ever bought. Uh, you're right. Home Sweet Home is the template for the power ballad. Even though it's not the first, it's the template. And even the video. The video has been copied by a million bands. I just did a live stream. I think it was last week. And it, we, we talked about the videos of the 80s. And when I talked about Home Sweet Home, I, I watched a lot of videos to prepare for the live stream. And everybody has their own version of that video. Poison, Bon Jovi, <laughs> you go through. They've all got their own version of that Home Sweet Home video. So that was groundbreaking for the hair bands. Uh, the look was groundbreaking. Everybody, and we might have talked about this before, but everybody copied that look. As soon as that look came out, Kiss looked like that, Dokken looked like that. Everybody looked like Motley Crue. So, it, you know, it, that's a big piece of it. But the songs are cool too. I, I love that album. And there's a couple, 
I think you mentioned like deep tracks. That's what makes this album, and this is and that's what breaks other albums, right? You got strong singles, but you ne- you don't have any cool deep tracks. I love Save Our Souls. That's a cool song. Uh, Fight for Your Rights, Use It or Lose It. Those are like my uh, those are like my three favorite songs on the album, and they're just like oddball songs toward the end of the album. But you know, I I think it has cool deep tracks, and it was one of my first. It was my first Motley Crue album. So okay, well that that's my spiel about Theater of Pain. Don't worry, I don't I don't hate you for liking theater pain because i love it too but i've got to put uh dr feelgood at number four and the, here's my here's my thing with dr feelgood it's a great album it's probably sonically their best album uh i think it's it's spot on and this album has their best singles there's no i mean you got five singles too so there's no album that can touch the videos that came for for motley Crue, the videos that came out the, the singles that they were doing, you know, Dr. Feelgood, Kickstart My Heart, they're all classics. You hear them in commercials and everything. They're just, these were great songs. The only problem with Dr. Feelgood for me is there's really no decent deep cuts for me. I think songs like Slice Your Pie and Rattlesnake Shake and all those kind of things, I don't like those songs. I don't even think, once again, I kind of look at them like the ones that are on um, Girls, Girls, Girls. They just don't do anything for me. And, but the singles are so strong that it, that pushes this album in the top four for me and the sound quality. But yeah, there's there's just certain songs that are just kind of like cheesy to me. But it's the singles that just sell that album for me. Okay, all right. Then I'm gonna I'm gonna give away uh, some of the the show here. I'm talking about Doctor Feelgood now. Doctor Feelgood, I actually had in my number one position. Okay. Um, and I always feel like I have to apologize to 90% of crew fans when I let them know this is my pick. Uh, and then I, actually, I feel like I have to apologize to them again when I tell them that the 94 album was almost number two. <laughs> and then they just stop listening. Uh, but, you know, we mentioned this a couple of times. But I, it's, sometimes it's about when you musically come of age, so to speak, right? If you were right. 16 years old in 1984, uh, you know, Molly Crew is shot at the devil. If you were 16 years old in 1989, you know, and you had to go backwards, it was sometimes it was Dr. Feelgood. And you're right, clearly this was Molly Crew's most commercially successful record. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they were at the top of their game. It was a number one album. Uh, five hit singles, to your point. They were all over radio and MTV, uh, you know, working with Bob Rock and kind of finally mostly being sober. You know, he got a tremendous performance out of them. You know, just beat the heck out of them in the studio. I think it's uh, their best vocals, their best musicianship, at least up to that point in time, the best production, uh, again, up to date and some of their best songwriting. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right, there, there's the singles and there's the rest of the album. Uh, you know, and the singles are fantastic. I mean, right out of the gate, this huge, bombastic, thumping title track, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, it's hard to deny Dr. Feelgood. Um, and just the sound of the drums. Uh, you know, in fact, people, not everybody knows, uh, Metallica sought out Bob Rock to produce their uh, famous Black album based solely on the production sound they heard on Dr. Feelgood. You know, they heard Dr. Feelgood and they said, this is the guy that needs to produce the Black Album. So yeah, it had tremendous production. Uh, you know, I probably am a little more forgiving of the non-singles uh, than some people. I kind of like Slice of Your Pie. Uh, you know, I thought it was a powerful kind of burning stomper and I like that uh, trippy outro that was kind of sounded like the Beatles. It didn't sound like it was the Beatles. It was the Beatles, <laughs> She's yeah. so heavy. Uh, but you're right. Uh, you know, songs like Sticky Sweet, uh, you know, lyrically, it was a, a little juvenile in, yeah. in certain places. Yeah. Um, and I didn't care for the ballads, you know, and it's not that I dislike hair metal ballads. I, I don't dislike them, but I, I wasn't a big fan without you. I know it was a, a big hit for them, and I, I didn't think much of Time for Change. Mm-hmm. Uh, on my own playlist, I sub in Primal Scream for Without You, and I drop off Time for Change, and I like the album a whole lot better, to be honest. Uh, 
but yeah, I mean, for me, that was just what I grew up with. You know, sure, I cut my teeth on, on theater of pain, but uh, in 1989, it was all about Dr. Feelgood. So I understand, you know, there's some a lot of people who are not going to feel this is their number one. Uh, but for me, I couldn't help but put it there. It just means a lot to me as a record. Well, I'm sorry I had to out you with your number one. So why, why did you give, give us your number three? Okay, so the number three, well, I, I had the 1994 record, but okay. we got that. Okay. Um, I guess the only one we didn't get is uh, the average fan's uh, hardcore absolute answer, right? Oh, right, right. <laughs> you have it. We're not there. Have it number three? Uh, I've got Theater of Pain at number three. So, like I said, I've, I've discussed my That's thoughts right. of, of Theater of Pain. I love it. That's my number three. What do you got for two? I, I guess at number two, I have your number one. Maybe. Or I have your number two. Okay. Oh, yeah, you don't right, know. So, you don't know. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm still in suspense. Uh, now, this is it, right? If you ask most Die Hard Crew fans, this is the, the, the best Molly Crew out. Or their favorite. Yeah, this is too fast for all. And I gave serious thought to putting this in the number one position. Uh, Shout of the Devil is special. Right? I mean, this was a groundbreaking thing in 1983. Uh, you know, it was their first album with proper label support. And to their credit, you know, they made sure it was a massive step forward, I thought, from Too Fast for Love. Everything was bigger, better, sharper. You know, the songwriting, the performance, the production, even their image. Uh, you know, Molly Crew at this point had raised the bar for everybody on the Sunset Strip. Uh, this was way ahead of what their peers on the Sunset Strip were doing. Um, it's one of those rare albums when I can listen to it front to back, and I don't want to skip any tracks, uh, the whole thing. Uh, you know, I think the only weaker track for me might be Danger, but even that, you know, it's a great song. And just some really cool stuff, right? I mean, everybody knows about Shout the Devil and Looks to Kill and, you know, uh, Too Fast for Love was a single. I'm sorry, uh, Too Young to Fall in Love was a single. But I like the other tracks, right? I, like, I love them, but, you know, Red Hot and Knock em Dead Kid and Ten Seconds of Love. This is some mean, nasty stuff. Uh, ruthless, guitar-driven rockers. And, you know, Neil had his high-pitched wails, and Tommy Lee was pounding away on the drums. Uh, even the crazy cover of Helter Skelter, which was a bizarre choice. But, you know, you listen to it in the flow of the album, and Molly Chris somehow managed to seamlessly integrate that into the overall mayhem that was the album. It, it was a landmark moment. Uh, and, you know, it's definitely worthy of the number two spot, if not necessarily the number one. Well, we're right in sync again. I got Shot at the Devil at number two. It, it's, uh, it's a killer album. You know what I mean? What more can I say? I think it contains, for me, like the epitome of Motley Crue, the song that if somebody asked me, I've never, or said to me, I've never heard Motley Crue, what song should I hear? I would say Looks That Kill, because that's just like the song man it's got the riff it's got the vocals it's got the gang gang vocal chorus it's just a cool song and there's so many great songs i actually love danger i think danger has like an eerie vibe with the verses it's it's kind of you know it's almost like sad but 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 heavy as well i don't know it's, it's just there's some really cool stuff on there i love helter skelter and it's funny because as a kid that was probably the first time i ever heard helter skelter and i thought oh well the beatles probably aren't as heavy as heavy as uh motley crew the beatles probably do it even heavier but like in a raw sense where motley crew has like a groove like a grooving chug that goes through that song so awesome and then of course you know red hot bastard all, all i mean the whole album just is kicks your ass the, I guess the only thing why I don't put it at number one is it just feels like it's 
it, there's that stereotypical metal that kind of gets put into that album, and you don't ever really hear it again. You hear a tiny bit of it on Theater of Pain, and then you don't ever really hear that metal, you know, like that stereotypical, you know, early 80s metal sound. So I feel like they're they're dabbling in that a little bit and bringing that to their sound, which, once again, isn't a bad thing, and that's how bands evolve throughout their career. They kind of dabble in what, what's going on at the time. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's a killer album, for sure. Absolutely. Okay, so I guess I guess we know what you have at number one, right? Yeah, and you know, number one, Too Fast for Love, and I can't say this has been my number one album by them my whole life. It's kind of something that's just come in, in in more recent years. I don't know. I think the reason why I like it, and everything you said was accurate. I can't fault you for what you, for everything you said, but. I think it's the the uniqueness of it. Like you said, it's kind of like pop and punk and rock and metal. And I think that's that's the charm. You know what I mean? Sometimes that's that's the thing. There's always these, you know, there's different artists and different sounds out there that maybe they're not the most proficient, but they've got charm. They've got character. That's what Too Fast for Love has. Uh, you've got a classic tune like Livewire. I mean, that's, that's a killer straight up metal song. But... Uh, you know, on with the show. Once again, it's another one of those kind of sad L.A. stories. You know what I mean? I just think those are really cool. And and for him to be writing something like that so early in his career, I like Mary Go Round and Round. Starry Eyes. Who's with me on Starry Eyes? That's a great song. Piece of your action. Uh, it's just, I mean, I can listen to the whole thing and just love it. And once again, like we talked about before with all the other albums, you know, it might be a little frantic and all over the place, integrating different sounds, but it still sounds consistent. It's that you can listen to the whole thing and you know this is, you know, too fast for love. This is girls, girls, girls. They're really good at, you know, just kind of sticking to that vibe and, and carrying it throughout the whole album. So yeah, I know, you know, they're not they're not the, they're not the Dr. Feelgood proficiency as musicians, right? I think at that point, all those, the four original guys, they, they were at the top of their game with uh, Dr. Feelgood. But I just I just like that. The charm and the innocence and just the rawness of, of Too Fast for Love, man. It's so cool. Oh, it makes it so special, doesn't it? And you're right. I mean, something like Starry Eyes, you know, was, was melodic. And, you know, that was just really straight-ahead power pop as yeah. much as anything. Uh, next to the, you know, the metal that was... Livewire, or even the the punk that was too fast for love. Um, you know, we can talk about musicianship and stuff like that and production, uh, but you're right. I mean, that's not necessarily what has to be in place to make a special album. You know, sometimes it's all these things that, that make it special that you know you can be overly critical of. Um, a lot of people will say, "Hey, by the time my crew got to Doctor Feelgood, they were they were watered down, and all yeah. this this raw you know amazing stuff they had on Too Fast for Love was gone." And they have a point. Uh, so I definitely think it, it's a special album. As, especially when you look at it against the backdrop of what was out there at the time. I mean, if you listen to Mick Mars' guitar tone on uh, Too Fast for Love on the album, I don't remember really anything sounding like that at the time. Uh, you know, it's not like they invented something, but they had something that people weren't doing a whole lot of, for sure. So, Chris, just so everybody listening uh, knows, why don't you just go top to bottom with your list real quick? Okay, so I had Generation Swine, New Tattoo, Saints of Los Angeles, Girls, 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 Too Fast for Love, Theater of Pain, the 1994 self-titled album, Shout of the Devil, and Dr. Feelgood. So again, just just one guy's opinion. Uh, if you catch me on a different day, I might swap it up a little bit, uh, but that's what I had. Okay, and then mine, we'll, we'll, go, we'll, go, uh, we'll go bottom to top. Okay, so Saints, uh, New Tattoo, 
Motley 94, Girls, Generation Swine, Dr. Feelgood, Theater, Shout, and then Too Fast coming in at number one. Do you love bands like Tough, Cats and Boots, Jet Boy, Jailhouse, Wildside, and more? Then get your ass over to DDR Music Group. There's tons of rare hair and glam metal CDs that you need in your collection. DDRMusicGroup.com. Check them out. Hey guys, this podcast takes a lot of time and effort. I want to do more in-depth projects on here, but I can't do it without your help. Just Google 80s Glam Metal Cast on Anchor. Once there, hit the support button and you can donate 99 cents, $4.99, or $9.99 a month. Your support will ensure that this podcast will be rocking out for years to come. Thanks for listening. But we're not done yet. We got a couple more things we got to, t- we got to figure out with Motley Crue. So we talked about the videos. You got a favorite video um, out of uh, from the crew? Um, well, my crew always had great videos, to be honest. I was always kind of partial to live performance-based videos. Um, you know, so I like the things like uh, when you can see them on stage. A same old situation I thought was really cool. Uh, you know, they dedicated that to their fans. They come in on the helicopter. You know, shows them in front of just a massive, insane crowd. Uh, you know, Tommy Lee takes kind of center stage there with his floating drum kit. Um, other performance videos, I thought Wild Side was fantastic. Yeah. You know, it kind of uh, it shows the band and all their their grit and glory at that time in their career. Uh, just a huge stage show, and again, you got Tommy Lee and his spinning drum kit. Kickstart My Heart was a cool performance video, uh, especially going back to the Whiskey a Go Go. You know, they they get driven in by Sam Kinison. I thought that was pretty cool. And then you got you know just some crazy adrenaline fueled antics with the drag racing and the the power boating and the skydiving. Uh, home Street Home is just landmark, right? Yeah. I mean, this is something really special. Uh, just showing how the, I love the, the slow motion cameras. You see the stage getting built up and then the performance. And then, uh, it's classic and famous that battle they take at the end. Uh, and so let's see anything. I mean, Dr. Feelgood, of course, the thing I remember about Dr. Feelgood, again, I probably people say, well, this guy stopped talking about Dr. Feelgood. <laughs> um, but you know, that was when I was really, you know, cutting my teeth and, and really just, entirely obsessed with hair metal not that I'm not entirely obsessed now I mean for goodness sake I wrote a book right. but you know that opening shot where the, the camera shows the, you rapidly zooming through the California desert into the tent with the flames and I just remember seeing that when I was 16 years old and just watching that scene and then you blast into the tent and you know it all goes to heck and it was just Motley Crue with their, their grittiest and grimiest I love it to death uh, you know some of their famous videos uh, you know maybe I'm not set, you know like too young to fall in love i it's a neat concept, but it just, in retrospect, to me, looks a, a little corny. It's weird. Like smoking in the boys' room or it looks to kill. Like, again, like the Mad Max beyond Thunderdome. But uh, all their videos are super entertaining. I mean, I could talk about their videos for hours if you wanted me to. I won't do that to you. Uh, <laughs> what, what do you get? What do you got on your list? Oh, I mean, yeah, you, you, you nailed it. But, uh, yeah, I do think, I do think uh, Too Young to Fall in Love is a little, it's a little odd. It's a little weird. But um, Wild Side is cool because, like you said, you're seeing the glory of that girls, girls, girls tour. Home Sweet Home is is uh, you know was a trend setting video. Everybody copied it. Looks that kills kind of cool, man. It's kind of like the Shout at the Devil uh, album comes alive in a video form. That's kind of neat. But probably their their classiest videos come from the Doctor Feelgood album. I think Doctor Feel I think Doctor Feelgood's probably their best video. It's a really cool scene, like you said, with the fire, and then they're telling the story of the the drug dealer and all that kind of stuff. So that's pretty cool. 
Without you, I watched that the other night, and it's kind of a it's kind of odd video, but it's it's cool. Like they're 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 in a cool setting that was made for that video. There's a really cool stage that was made for it, and even "Don't Go Away Mad" is pretty neat. How uh, Vince has to fly in uh, to the the rehearsal space, and it it, it just. It, it just reminds you of that time, you know, brings you back to the 80s of, of all the fun. And I think those were probably their biggest budget videos, you know, so. Oh, yeah. And I love the Don't Go Away Mad video, too. That almost made the list. Uh, you know, people forget. I like the, the Primal Scream video, too. Yeah. This is not a performance clip, but this is a very dark and shadowy and, you know, silhouetted type of thing, artistic. Uh, you mentioned a lot earlier in the call, you know, you would have been interested in seeing what Motley Crue did with, with Vince Neil in 1994 had they stayed together. Yeah. Um, you know, and at the time it was really a bummer because, you know, Dr. Feelgood was huge. And I thought Primal Scream, I thought, wow, this is the band kind of taking everything that was great about them and making it a little darker and a little even heavier. And I said, this is terrific if this is the direction the band's moving in. Now, we never got to see what would have happened. Uh, we don't know. And for some fans that may be more casual out there, anyone listening, check out the video for all bad things. Uh, this is just a single released later in their career. Uh, I forget the exact year. Maybe it was 2015. Uh, but it's a pretty neat video because it takes you through their entire career with clips from every video before that. Uh, so check that out if you haven't seen it, anybody. Yeah, you know, I was thinking of that before we talked. I, I was kind of going through Spotify and just refreshing my memory of, of certain songs and whatnot. And I thought the same exact thing because... You know, Primal Scream was was so much promise. You know what I mean? Like, oh, this is Crew in the '90s. Crew's Crew's badass. Crew's getting heavy. You know, and uh, we never got to see that play out. I I honestly think an album, and if they could have kept it together, 1992 or '93, with an album with that kind of vibe, I think they would have. I, I, they wouldn't have had a, maybe a huge hit, but they would have done decent. I I really think so. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they were going to sell six million copies like Doctor Feelgood. Um, but, you know, could they, have, could they have had a platinum record in 1993? Uh, maybe. I think you know, so. maybe. And you know what I really like? It would have like... been close, right? Would it have been? Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, no, I really like the direction that Vince Neil went on on some of the solo stuff because, don't get me wrong, there's some real cheesy stuff on a solo album, but there's some really intense stuff like Look in Her Eyes, The Edge. Uh, I would have loved to seen, you know, if you could have somehow morphed Motley 94, Exposed, Primal Scream, all into kind of one thing. I think it would have been amazing. Oh, I loved the Exposed album. You know, I thought it was fantastic at the time. To me, it just sounded like a continuation of Dr. Feelgood. Yep. And, you know, huge credit to Steve Stevens, you know, for kind of saving that album from a you know, songwriting, a guitar, pyrotechnic standpoint. But Vince's voice, you know, you say what you want about Vince's voice now, but on that album, I mean, he was at the top of his game. He sounded great. I love that album. I still listen to that. Yeah, me too. He sounded great. Uh, okay, so let's let's put it out there. Who's your favorite member of Motley Crue? Oh gosh, can <laughs> do I have a favorite member? Is it possible to have a favorite member? I mean, oh, you, yeah. you got to love these guys, all of them, for each of their idiosyncrasies. And at the same time, you got to hate all of them too. I mean, let's face it; they wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> you know, so you know, I, I love what each of them is, is distinctly bringing to the table, uh, and that's really it with them. I mean, you got four completely separate characters uh, that really have very little in common, seemingly, uh, but they come together uh, where the sum is, is definitely more than, the whole is definitely more than the sum of the parts, right? Motley Crue, the four of these guys, somehow is something really special. Um, so I appreciate what, what each of them bring to the table, and I don't know how, honestly, I'm sorry, I don't know how to answer that question, <laughs> other than saying, you know, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll give the nod to Mickey Six just because, you know, he, he's the architect, right? He he's Motley the man Crue. with the plan. Uh, he wrote the songs, so uh, we'll give him the nod by default. 
Yeah, I gotta go Vince Neil. And look, I understand, you know, Vince Neil has uh, has some flaws. Hey, we all do. And if, strangely enough, Vince Neil yeah. blo- uh, Vince Neil blocks me on Twitter. But you know what? I don't hold it against him. I still love him. I think he's uh, he just was the guy. You know, I don't know. He was just that typical amazing lead singer guy from the 80s you know what i mean he was just the guy he was cool you know and uh i don't know man i just always i always liked his voice too and a lot of people don't like his voice i think his voice is awesome and uh it's unique there's really not too many people i've ever heard that sound anything like him so yeah i'm a vince guy well that's true right i mean you know vince is not the most you know technically proficient singer you know forgive me he sings about a billion times better than you know most of the people on the planet uh but he has a very you know charismatic stage presence and you're right when you hear vince neil's voice you know it's him and at the same time that's what makes it motley crew right so you know you can't have motley crew without vince neil you, you just can't okay so final question chris is motley crew the best hair metal band of the 1980s <laughs> oh, the, the best hair metal band. I mean, that's that's tough to say, right? I mean, that's a you know, I'm going to take the easy way out and, and, and say I don't know how to answer. I mean, let's put it this way: uh, you know, there were bands that were pretty representative and pretty influential and pretty. Hey, this was what the time was all about. Uh, in that conversation, you know, you can have a few bands. You can talk about Rat. You can talk about Motley Crue. Uh, you know, you can talk about Poison, you can talk about Cinderella. As you get later in the era, you can talk about Skid Row or Warren. You can even, uh, you know, talk about uh, Guns N' Roses if you want to consider them at that era. And, of course, you can't get away from Bon Jovi, et cetera. I'll yep. a few in there. But you're not going to have any conversation like that, even if you narrow it down to, to three or four bands, without talking about Molly Crew. In fact, I mean, let's just say they were indispensable to the time, you know, for all their, their goods and bads and the things people liked about them and the things people didn't like about them, uh, there's probably not 80s hair metal without Molly Crew. Uh, early in their career, they were definitely trendsetters. I mean, what any, don't care what anybody says, they were setting some trends in 1983 and 1985. Uh, you know, so they were, like I said, indispensable, uh, no Molly Crew, no hair metal to a certain extent, I would think. Now, are they the best? Well, I'll let the, I'll let the fans decide that. Uh, but for me, uh, they're always going to hold a special place in my heart, for sure. I'm going out on a limb. I'm saying they're the best. Yeah, they're they're, they're the best, man. I, I there don't you care. Go. <laughs> I, you know what? I like someone who's not afraid to put it out there. That's I like, right. <laughs> I I like you know there's hey they were the best at what they did, right? There's there no we doubt go. about that. There we so go. What they did, no one could have, no one else could have done it. No, and you know, think of it this way: if you think of the '80s and all the bands you mentioned, or some of them, Motley Crue did more than they did. You know, obviously Warrant and Skid Row are coming pretty late to the party. Even Guns N' Roses is kind of late to the party. You know, Motley Crue did more than any of those bands throughout the '80s. You know, Bon Jovi had major success. Um, Death Leopard did as well, but I don't think for me they're just not as fun. Uh, for me, they're just not as fun as Motley Crue. There's just so many. There's so much craziness with Motley Crue. All the antics, all the trouble, the the hits, the videos, the tour. I mean, it's just it's just so much fun. I mean, they're not my favorite band. It's always going to be Kiss, but Motley Crue is my definitely my favorite band out of the '80s that came from the '80s. I'll I'll support that any day of the week. If you if you told me you could erase all the music from my mind except for one band. God bless me. I'm going to keep everything from Molly Crew in there. <laughs> it's just fun, man. It's good stuff. So. Except, for the, except for the Generation Swine album. <laughs> oh, that hurts. 
<laughs> Sorry, Mike. I I can't help it. I, you know, I have tried to like that album so many times. It's not that I'm not trying. <laughs> you know what's funny? I got to throw this out there. Is that when we we saw him at that um that show where they the CD release party, everybody booed when Tommy did Brandon. Uh, and everybody was like screaming oh, for. Oh gosh! Don't yeah. get me started. Everybody was screaming for like you know um, you know play Doctor Feelgood, and they did. Ultimately, they did play a set at the end of just some of the classics like Primal Scream and Doctor Feelgood and Kickstart My Heart. They played some of the classics, but yeah, I'll never forget that. It was just like wow, I think this album might be in trouble. <laughs> I remember the scene right. He came out with the piano, and the candles were on top of the piano. And hey, you know, Tommy, I'm not trying to give him grief. Uh, I appreciate what he was trying to do with that right. song. Uh, you know, in his mind, it was very heart, heartfelt, but I mean, God bless it. I, I don't know. It's not for me. Yeah, no, it wasn't <laughs> for the people in New York City that saw it either. So, well, man, why don't you tell everybody real quick <laughs> the best way, tell everybody the best way to, to get a hold of your book. Oh, okay. Uh, so again, the book is The Rise, Fall, and Rebirth of Hair Metal. You can go out on Amazon and get it, or you can head out to my website, www.hairmetalforever.com. Hope you like it. Yeah, I don't care what anybody says. There's stuff in that book that they do not know. There are things that they're, they'll hear in there that they will just blow their minds. There's some crazy stories. I thought it was an awesome read. I would like to read it again. I know a lot of people that heard you on the last podcast bought the book, and uh, they were sending me pictures of the book, which I sent on to you. So I thought that was so cool because that's what it's all about. It's about connecting with people who like this kind of music. That's why we put it on social media. That's why Chris wrote the book. That's why we do podcasts, just to keep the, the, the memories alive, the music alive. So Chris... Really appreciate your time. It was so fun to talk about Motley Crue. We probably could have went in a whole other hour, but, you know, we'll save it for the next one. All right, sounds good. Hey, I appreciate the opportunity to come on the show. I love talking about the, the music and, and Motley Crue with another educated, passionate fan, so thank you for that. And uh, like you said, uh, for better or worse than Call Me Crazy, I, I could have spoke about them for, for weeks, and I'm happy to at any given time, so you know where to find me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, man, it was a pleasure talking with you. Have a good night. Okay, Mike. Hope to speak with you again soon. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Take care, man. You got it. Take care. Well, that was great chatting with Chris about the crew. Now, make sure you become a subscriber to the channel. Go through and check out all the cool metal content that's posted on here. Rock on!